Two and a half admins, episode 100. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again for the 100th time. Well done, except I don't think both of you have been on every episode, have you? I missed one. I also missed one. No, you've missed way more than one. No, I didn't actually miss one. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you didn't miss one. Thanks to the magic of editing. And no one noticed, I'm sure. Yes. Anyway, before we get started, you want to plug your webinar again. Yeah, uh, so the webinar happened and the video is now up on our website. So if you missed the live version, uh, you can check out Jim and I's webinar about how to get started with the open source hypervisor Beehive. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. We've got a ton of your feedback, so let's get to that. First of all, Clear said, I just want to point out that Cisco had an end-of-life notice out for the RV series routers before the end of sale and last day of software maintenance date, just like all the rest of their products. It seems a little unfair to stick it to Cisco when they were transparent about the end of software support. These vulnerabilities are coming out after the last day of software maintenance, and the router is 14 years old now. And then there's links to uh, the various announcements. So this was us kind of ragging on Cisco for not patching routers that they had officially abandoned. Right, and we made the point that, you know, even Microsoft continues to patch really critical vulnerabilities and things long after they don't support it anymore because you have a bit of a stewardship duty if if you put millions of these devices out in the wild that just because you don't support them anymore doesn't mean that you want them ruining the internet for everyone else. Exactly. The point was not you can never end of life a device. It's that having a completely hard and fast cutoff date for end of life on a product like an operating system or a router, it's a bit unreasonable in my opinion. And yes, I know, you know, Cisco fans are saying, oh, you know, there was a notice that went out, you know, sometime before. But in reality, how many people are really seeing those? Like, you know about it when you get like the email at the last minute or, you know, when you go to look for firmware and it's not there. The the notices, it, it kind of reminds me of the old, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy bit about the notice for the demolition of Arthur Dent's house being publicly posted in the basement in a disused cabinet marked Beware of the Leopard. <laughs> yeah, and if you got the gear through a reseller then you might not have necessarily got any sort of notification about it. And I suppose it is on you to keep up with these things, but that's not always practical, is it? Right, especially, you know, these are small business routers. They're not, you know, professional series routers. So these are mostly bought by people that aren't IT experts. And it doesn't really scale to say, oh, well, it's your thing. It's on you to keep up with whatever and, you know, read every product announcement that's mixed in with marketing dreck and, you know, interior sales attempts and all the other things. I mean, how many things do you own that may or may not be end of life right now? And do you actually know the status on every single one of them due to your own efforts at keeping on top of them? Yeah, at least Google gives you some warning with Chromebooks, for example. I mean, that's a consumer-facing device, so it's not exactly the same, but they make it very clear, this is going to be end of life, and then this is end of life. You're not getting any more updates. If you want to update, upgrade to a new machine. Yeah, I got the same on my phone. And and like we talked about in the original story for this, maybe it's time that most devices come with a only supported until, or at least supported until at least this date on the box. So when you're buying it, you can make a decision about I I know this is only going to last this many years. Now I'm looking at the price a little bit different than I was assuming, A, I'd I'd be able to use it forever or that I assume it's only good for two or three years when maybe it's going to be supported for at least five or something. All right, Christoph says, Grub is definitely able to select a non-default boot option 
and go back to the default one after that one. I just found out yesterday researching a surefire way of installing a self-built SSH-enabled ZFS boot menu on cloud servers without console access. I'm on Ubuntu 22.04 and the process there is quite easy. And then he details how to do it. And then he says, if the temporary boot entry, in my case ZFS boot menu, doesn't come up right, just reset the machine and it boosts to the default again. Yeah, uh, what we were talking about is actually something slightly different, where from inside the OS, you would use ZFS boot config or BECTL or something to select a different ZFS boot environment. So the different default selection from ZFS boot menu, not selecting ZFS boot menu versus not or something. So what we were talking about was a little bit different than just overriding the one-time default in Grub. And it can be a little more feature-rich than that because it can let you specify the list of kernel things. But yeah, you can do something like that with Grub. The difference is Grub relies on being able to remove that part of the config for the next boot, and it doesn't have write access to ZFS. And that's, you know, FreeBSD had a system called Nextboot, and it worked by literally in your boot config file overwriting nextboot equals yes with nextboot equals no space. So that would be the same number of characters and be interpreted correctly next time so that if something went wrong, it wouldn't persist. But it turns out the bootloaders can manage to read from ZFS, but writing to ZFS requires a lot more code than would fit in the bootloader. Okay, Michael says, Peter was looking for good FOSS central auth solutions. I'd suggest you take a look at free IPA. If Peter doesn't need to join Windows boxes to this auth, which by his description he doesn't, free IPA provides a bunch of benefits. We deploy it at work across the world, 4,000 plus endpoints, several air-gapped networks, and it just works, TM. I also run it on my home lab, and its small footprint and ease of config make it something I just don't have to worry about. If he does need or want Windows clients to join the domain, free IPA supports doing a cross-domain trust with Active Directory, and presumably Samba 4. And at this point, Samba 4 might be the better option. Full disclosure, I've never tested this feature in production. I would definitely just go with Samba 4 if there was any possibility of wanting to join Windows boxes to it, or Macs, or what have you at some point. I would also say, again, I have not used free IPA in production, but when I looked at it, just spinning up a Samba 4 Active Directory domain controller seemed considerably simpler to me. In all fairness, that could be due to my familiarity with Active Directory, but it's an easy solution and it extends further. You're you're not really limited to a single platform at that point. And furthermore, IPAs are just too hoppy and I don't want them in my house. (laughs) Well, Michael did suggest that you might not be into it because it's a Red Hat thing. Oh, no, no. I use all kinds of Red Hat technology. I absolutely freaking love Vert Manager and guess where that emerged? Red Hat. I don't really enjoy the Red Hat distros, but nobody should ever take that as me having any kind of antipathy to Red Hat, the organization. No, man, it's it's a good shop and they produce a lot of good code. Just because I don't want to run their distro on my own machine does not mean I have any dislike for them. Yeah, same with me. I've just only ever really used Ubuntu. And um, I've kind of used some of the Red Hat stuff, Fedora and, and whatnot, and CentOS to some extent, but... I'm just more familiar with Ubuntu, but I've always found that the Red Hat side of things are fine distros and fine bits of software, but they're just not necessarily for me. Almost all of my Linux experience has been with Red Hat-based distros until recently when I started using more Ubuntu or seeing more Ubuntu on customer deployments. Yeah, but it's all just Linux peasants to you, isn't it? You know, it's 
just kind of just like <laughs> you guys with distros. It's this is the one I know and everything's where I think it should be and and I'm happy here, but it doesn't mean the other things aren't perfectly serviceable. Okay, Aiden said, having recently needed to configure IE mode for an old application at work, I can tell you it seems to work just like the IE of old because it's embedding the IE 11 renderer into Edge's window. There are GPO policies available to remove the IE launcher and shortcut to make it look like the system has been removed, and I'm sure there is probably some additional sandboxing to give it some of the same benefits as Edge's Chromium-based rendering, but it behaves identically in my admittedly limited single-app testing. I'm just glad I don't have anything that needs the IE anything. Before I say anything about that, I want to lead into our next bit of feedback from Josh, who also talked about the official death of IE in the rendering mode. Uh, Josh opines it's only a matter of time before Windows completely removes IE mode. I know Edge has it, but it doesn't support Silverlight. We have several web apps deployed, and they are all using Silverlight. The dev who created them could care less to learn anything new. I've searched around for some Silverlight players similar to Flash, but have come up empty. Is there anything you know of that could help? I want to deploy Windows 11 by the end of next year, and without Internet Explorer, that's not possible right now. In before, hire a new dev. And to, so to address this, uh, I will back Josh up. Yes, there are no good options that I could find anywhere, and I spent a few hours looking for Silverlight players. Uh, there are a few abandoned projects that never really got to a significant completion. I would say like 50 to 75% complete several years ago when they were abandoned, and that's about it. So if you're stuck supporting a Silverlight app, well, <laughs> you are very, very stuck. If you are stuck with a developer who refuses to use anything but Silverlight, well, I'm not sure you did get in before hire <laughs> a new dev because I don't have any better options for you. How are they still running the Silverlight dev tools even? Like, just make them use a new machine. <laughs> I remember doing some support for video in Silverlight back because, like, Netflix was in Silverlight, like, in the very beginning because it was the way to get DRM on most Windows machines. But nothing's used that in a long time. Yeah. I, I just don't understand how you can have a dev who refuses to use anything else in 2022. This just doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to be flippant or overly aggressive, but I don't know anything else to say to that other than he's going to continue doing it as long as somebody continues paying him to. Mm. I somewhat understand the idea of holding on to old things or whatever, but at this point it's like, this is just, nobody can run it. What's the point? It's like saying to a customer, right, yeah, I'm going to set you up this server with Ubuntu 12.04 because that was a great release and we're not going to upgrade beyond that, even though it's 10 years old at this point and totally out of support. I don't understand how you can get away with getting paid to do that sort of thing. If you can find somebody to pay you to do it, then what's your impetus to change? As the grayest of the gray beards to, amongst the three of us, I remember a time that updates were few and far between, and we liked it that way, and it was fine. I remember having years of uptime on NT 4.0 server boxes with early service packs and not even wanting to bother applying new service packs because I didn't have any problems. The difference is in those days, you know, the internet access was dial up and there really wasn't a whole lot in the way of like compromises that reach out to you inside your browser, you know, back then in the late 1990s. It, back then it could make sense to say, I prefer stability. This works. It's not causing me any problems. So why would I change it? And there are just some people who remember those days who have never quite gotten the message that they are gone. And the reason now is because 
you acquired new problems, and those new problems have human faces, and they want to get in and wreck your crap. So, I mean, 1204 was an outstanding release, and if I had the option, I honestly might run it if all my apps ran on it. But <laughs> it's not an option because, again, like, you know, nobody has patched it. And it's littered with CVEs that will never get fixed. And it probably doesn't have support for most of the hardware in your new machine either. That's also a point. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Okay, Christopher says, regarding antivirus on Linux, Sophos AV is technically better than Clam AV on memory, but not really in any meaningful way that makes it worth switching. Better to live with it or find a way around the requirement. I was working on Rail 7 on AWS EC2 in late 2020 for context. While Sophos was a little bit less RAM-hungry, it wasn't much, around 600 megabytes versus ClamAV's 700 megabytes. Under no configuration could I get either to complete a scan on a 512 megabyte VPS, and a 1 gigabyte idle box would get knocked over if a scheduled YUM upgrade check ran during one of the daily two-hour virus scans. The company I worked for invested a lot of my time to try and find a solution to this problem, as we had a lot of workloads segregated on different small VMs for security reasons, and we had to run antivirus for security reasons. The problem was that the virus definitions had to be applied to every file, so the definitions had to sit in memory. They were actually very efficiently represented in memory, but there were just a lot of them. I was able to develop a hack on the ClamAV definitions whereby I split the definitions into three sets and scanned the entire file system three times to get one full check, but it was hacky and still wouldn't consistently complete on a 512 megabyte box. So the company just moved to big boxes running the AV and segregated the workloads in containers. Okay, so the first thing that strikes me about this is the complaint is running a scan as opposed to doing, you know, like real-time check of a file as you open it. And if your compliance requirement is to do a scan, it's actually not a great idea to run that on the box that you want to scan the file system of anyway. It would be a better idea to have a separate machine or VM with enough RAM and with share access to be able to scan each of those itty-bitty boxes file systems for them. Uh, that would remove the resource constraint at that point. The only thing you have to worry about inside the individual VMs is, you know, any additional storage load caused by the scanning. But that would avoid the the weird, like, triple scan to try to cut down the size that just in pretty much every conceivable way, it would be more efficient and make more sense to have one machine properly configured to have enough resources to do the scan, scan the file systems of all of the VMs once a day. Yeah, like that was my first thought was from the host of the hypervisor doing the scan of the, the image files to be able to see stuff because, yeah, you won't have the resource constraint there. And it'll just be more efficient to scan every VM one at a time or whatever, rather than 
especially if you're configuring these scans, you know, if you're manually having to figure out, we only want one of these to scan at a time so we don't create too much extra IO load or, you know, have them all scan at midnight is just going to clobber your hard drives. Yeah, but this is on AWS, so you don't have access to the uh, host. Uh, right. But you can certainly spin up another one and give it NFS access to the file systems of all the VMs and let it scan them. Yeah. And Jim's point about there being disadvantages from scanning the VM from within the VM is like if there's a rootkit or something, it can hide files from the virus scanner. Whereas if you're accessing the raw storage, then you don't have that problem. Okay, Georgie writes, I agree with all the things he said about Nagios and other monitoring systems. In fact, I've been through the same experience at my company where I started as a sysadmin 15 years ago. We used Nagios, we had Puppet deploy configuration templates, and if it's not Nagios, it does not exist. Isinger, or Isinger is it, is how we solved our company growth pains that we experienced with Nagios. We picked Isinger as the modern replacement. It started as a fork of Nagios in 2009, but today Isinger 2 is worlds apart. It scales horizontally for larger deployments, has APIs to make management easier, compatible with the Nagios plugins so you can use your checks as they are, supports rules which are very powerful, you can apply a service check based on puppet facts or puppet classes, or even match a pattern against any of them, has a modern, pretty, snappy interface, free as in all the meanings of the word, time-limited acknowledgements, something I missed a lot in Nagios. It takes a bit more work to set up, but it's worth it if you need to scale. Yeah, luckily our whole thing fits in one Nagios install. For a while when we were collecting a lot of passive checks, more for metrics rather than monitoring, we did spin up as a separate Nagios because of the scaling issues, but we just have never hit the point where it was worth the extra work to switch over to Isinga. I certainly can't argue with anything that uh, Georgie said about Isinga, largely because I've never actually spun it up. I, you know, I've I've seen all the same things about how it's the more modern, you know, better version of Nagios, and it's compatible with everything. And several times I've told myself, you know, I should really check that out. But it's just it's an issue that, unlike Ubuntu twelve oh four, Nagios is still out there and still well supported, and it fits my needs so well that I just haven't really been willing to devote the bandwidth to learning Isinga because. I just don't have any problems with Nagios that I need to solve. The problem it solves is if you have so many machines or checks so frequently that Nagios can't keep up because of its kind of single-threadedness that was part of the architecture. And so if I had more machines or a lot more services or really needed to check them every minute instead of every 5 to 15, depending on the type, it would be worth the activation energy to switch. It's just that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, same. With you know a few hundred of machines, each of which has... Anywhere from like, you know, five to 20 services to monitor. It has not been an issue for me running Nagios to monitor all of those on the cheapest Linode VM. Well, Matthias says, in episode 97, I was wondering why there was no mention of a push-based monitoring system like InfluxDB, Graphite, or Victoria Metrics with an agent like Telegraph when someone had the need for a scalable and easy-to-automate monitoring system. Personally, I use Telegraph and Victoria Metrics, for both my lab and at my old job, and it was easy to deploy it via Ansible since each machine needed the connection info pushed to it, and the backends of those systems even scaled horizontally. Yeah, I've used Graphite to get really rich metrics monitoring on ZFS. I've just never used it for that much actually checking things like, is the pool in a good state? I don't know what that would look like in Graphite or Grafana. Exactly. Yeah, I've got the same experience. Um, for me, those platforms fall into basically the category that I would use net data for, typically. Net data is fantastic for getting like real-time 
down to the millisecond updates on all of the nitty gritty details of what a system is doing right then. It can be invaluable for looking at, um, it's sort of like a counterpart to uh, like a Windows resource monitor, you know, where I would look at resource monitor on a Windows machine to be like, okay, what's happening with my storage? What's happening with my RAM? What's happening with my CPU right now? When I click to fire off this application, what spikes? Where's my bottleneck? That's what I use those kind of services for, but I have not found, and I am only human, I may be missing something, but I have not found anything in those services that really matches well my desire for monitoring, which is not, I want to know exactly the condition of this thing right now. I want to know more of like a pass fail and blow my phone up in my pocket if the answer is fail. With Grafana, we have done things like if the NFS queue depth gets too high on this server, then alert. Or, you know, if the the latency of uh, each transaction group goes above this value, then alert. But not really looked into how to make it be like, hey, a disk has failed in this, whereas we already have other monitoring for that. And I would use Nagios even for the, you know, checking a queue depth or whatever. Uh, it's just telling it like, mm-hmm. this is the thing I want you to look at. Here's the part where you go from okay to warn. Here's the part where you go from warn to crit. Yeah, it's just uh, with our Grafana, it's more that somebody reported an hour and 20 minutes ago that performance tanked. And I want to actually look at the metrics for the last two hours and see, you know, an hour and 20 minutes ago, some stat changed massively and what might have caused that. And, and Grafana does a nice idea with that being able to zoom in and zoom out of rich metrics like that. That's exactly what I'm talking about, though. That's that's forensics. That's not monitoring. Exactly. Or it's at least metrics rather than monitoring, which you probably want both, but I don't know if there's one tool that does both as well as each tool does its own thing. Yeah, the whole Unix philosophy, right? Well, yeah, it's just, you know, if software is meant to do something, it's probably pretty good at it. But when it tries to do two different things, it's going to have to sacrifice its how good it is at something. Yeah, you're going to have to make some significant engineering sacrifices to tow a boat with your motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash two five A. Okay, we've got some emails about speed testing. Marcos says this is an improved alternative to DSL reports. And this is the buffer bloat tool from waveform.com. Is this something you two were aware of? Vaguely, but I tend to forget about it. Every time I see the word buffer bloat, I'm just reminded of like tons and tons of conversations I've had over the year with the guy who uh who, who talks the most about it. I, I believe he actually coined the term. And when he saw what I was doing with Wi-Fi testing, he was like immediately reaching out and wanting to rattle my cage about the, the work that he has done. Uh, you know, like with, uh, with the cake algorithm and, uh, you know, various other things trying to tackle the problem because, uh, router manufacturers in the consumer space 
are absolutely notorious for wanting to have like enormous buffers, which gives them good throughput numbers on speed tests, but can make your latency just absolutely suck. Yeah, it reminds me of what I think it was the PlayStation 4, maybe it was the 3, did to make downloads and stuff it was doing throttled while you're playing a game. So if it if something was downloading in the background, they'd lower the sliding window on TCP to be really small, and that would make it slow and not use up all your bandwidth in regular instances. But if you happen to have one and be in Australia, it would make your download so slow it would be useless <laughs> because the latency was so high and they didn't think of that in their testing. Well, Jeremy wrote in with something of a war story here. The discussion on speed tests reminded me of a friend who recently exceeded their one terabyte data cap at their ISP. I mean, that's bad enough, a one terabyte data cap. But anyway, at first, they thought it was an issue with friends using their local Jellyfin server. However, it turned out that they'd set up a script to continuously run a speed test and log the results to a file to see if their ISP ever throttled a connection. Turns out that... A speed test, obviously, downloads a chunky file each time it is run, and if you run it continuously, you end up downloading a massive amount of data. This is a problem also with a lot of the consumer mesh Wi-Fi systems out there because the majority of them do the same thing. They want to run a daily speed test, in some cases several times daily. In some cases, it's hard even to find like scheduling or completely disable that feature. And yeah, if you're on a really aggressively capped internet connection, it can just absolutely ruin your day. I will mention, though, that constant speed tests will certainly add up, but it's not really true that you have to download a huge, chunky file to do a speed test. I've got a little IoT gadget on my network called Monitor.io that I reviewed for Ars Technica uh, years ago, and um, it takes a very different approach to internet quality testing. Rather than download a massive file and, you know, look for throughput, what it actually does is it checks latency to a lot of locations, you know, distributed geographically across the world. And it gets a really good idea of how good a condition your internet connection is from that latency. So testing latency all the time, all day long. Now, it would still add up to enough data to be a problem for your friend with the uh, with the one terabyte cap, probably. Well, one terabyte's a lot, honestly. If you're doing continuous 24-7 anything, you can get to a terabyte pretty quickly. Yeah, I guess that'd have to be like three megabits constantly to do a terabyte in a month. In a month? Yeah. One megabit a month is 350 gigabytes. Yeah, but... It's a problem long before that alone eats the entire cap up. What you're saying is a single megabit adds up to a third of your bandwidth cap of one terabyte per month gone. Yes. That's a problem. Yeah. Monitor IO's traffic was more like, uh, it was in the kilobits. It wasn't anywhere near a megabit. I think it was like 15 kilobits, but it still adds up to enough to be of concern for some folks on like cell phone plans, you know, satellite. Yeah, I have a kind of similar device. Uh, it's a RIPE Atlas probe. So RIPE, the IP authority for Europe, I uh, got given it at a conference. And it does similar things of doing latency checks and pings and trace routes to all different endpoints on the internet to evaluate the quality of my connection, how it changes over time and and so on. And by hosting one, you earn credits that you can use to run trace routes from other people's probes to your own locations. And I've found it very useful for just have a hundred different people out in the world trace route back to this and give me an idea of like how well connected that ISP is and so on. 
This really boils down to the fact that there is no one way to tell how good your internet is. It's not how fast is my internet. Well, yes, how good your internet is happens to be made up of a bunch of different qualities. The latency, the throughput, the jitter, the even just is it oversubscribed and slower at certain times of the day and just how well peered it is. Like how, you know, when you're connecting to somewhere at another local ISP, do you have to go through another country? A problem in Canada is that the big telcos here refuse to peer with anybody in Canada because if you're in Canada, you should be buying transit from them, not peering with them. And so you end up trying to ping your neighbor who's on a different ISP and you have to go down to Chicago and back to to do it (laughs) because they'll peer with each other in the foreign countries, but not locally. So Greybeard bringing in the dreaded car analogy again, it's like saying, how fast is a car? Well, that depends. Are you wanting to do quarter mile? eighth mile, or you want to do a road track, you want to do autocross, you want to do rally, turns out it's going to be very different for all of the above. If you want to say, well, I want a car that's fast in all of those conditions. All right. Well, you can't just talk about one thing and come up with that. You got to talk about the suspension. You got to talk about the tires. You got to talk about the motor. You got to talk about all these things because it's not as simple as just saying, is it faster? Is it slow? And you really can't just turn that into one number. It's a you know, it, it, if you graph that, you're going to be graphing it in three dimensions, not two. You know, it's it's going to be a, a really ugly solid form. So, yeah, you, you can't just give it one number to call it a day. Uh, returning real quickly to the monitor I.O. device, because I really do love that thing. I went and looked it up, and uh, the actual traffic averages out to 14 kilobits, 24-7. Uh, it actually occurs in about 0.3 megabit spikes. But uh, when you average out all the bursts 24-7, 14 kilobits, comes out to about 5 gigabytes a month, which really wouldn't be that big of an impact on our listeners' friends' one terabyte data cap. But if you're on cellular and you've got a 5 gig data cap, well, it'll eat that all by itself. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Do keep sending in your feedback to show at 2.5admins.com or your questions for Jim and Alan as well. And if you sent in feedback that we haven't covered yet, don't worry, we will cover it soon. And also a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to learn more. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an ad-free RSS feed. But until next week then, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.